The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. Well, good afternoon, folks. Uh, great to see you here. As one of my friends uh, teaches at a school down the south coast, and uh, one of the other ladies who turns up at the school is uh, running or involved in running the ethics program on the back of her car is this um, what would you call it? Punchy sticker which says, "Don't pray in my school. I won't think in your church." <laughs> now that's uh, got a fairly pointed message, I guess. We put it into my vocabulary. We say, "If you believe in God, you're an idiot." I think that pretty much what it's saying. Now I gotta say I have met some Christians who are thick as fence posts, but I mean there's others who just don't fit the mold. Maybe there are some who are actually intelligent or who think. For example, uh, last year we had this man, Professor John Lennox, um, a professor of mathematics at Oxford University, um, out here, and I had the privilege of having a meal or two with him over, over the last couple of years. He's a wonderful, funny, warm Irishman. Uh, we were talking about how we got through university and he said when he was an undergrad he needed some work and there was work going uh, translating documents from English into Russian and from Russian into English. So he said, so I bought a Russian dictionary and I learned Russian and translated these. If you learned Russian yourself from a book to put yourself through university, he said, yes. And I'm thinking, eh, I worked in a pizza hut um, <laughs> in English. Okay. Uh, I thought we might do a little, uh, little exercise. Is it really the case that people who don't think or people who aren't too bright are the ones who are Christian versus the ones who are really bright are the atheists? Well, he, look, here's a couple of silhouettes. Uh, this man was uh, an assistant professor of zoology at the University of California. Now he's the um, uh, professor of public understanding of science at Oxford. Uh, this man, a doctor of philosophy and uh, physical chemistry, um, uh, at Yale University, led the National Human Genome Research Institute and uh, was elected um, a member of the National Academy of Sciences in the USA. So which one's the Christian, which one's the atheist? And there you go, that was Richard Dawkins, who's the, uh, I guess the, the movement leader for the new atheist, and Francis Collins, who wrote the book The Language of God and uh, is an evangelical Christian. And yet they're both world-leading biologists. Let's, let's try another one. Um, physics. Uh, professor of Mathematical Physics at the University of Cambridge, President of Queen's College, Cambridge, from 88 to 96. Uh, this man, American theoretical physicist, cosmologist, um, etc., etc. And who are they? Well, uh, John Pockinghorn, uh, outspoken Christian, written many books about uh, God and science. And Lawrence Krauss, who was out here two years ago uh, and debated William Lane Craig at the town hall. He's uh, an outspoken atheist. I find it interesting, and I guess, well, you're too polite to leave the room, so you might too. In 1969, the Carnegie Commission in the USA did a survey of 60,000 American professors in universities. And as part of the survey, they asked uh, the professors their views on religion. What was interesting is that uh, even for these smartest people in the room, their religious beliefs tracked along the same percentages as the general population. 
So you look here, mathematics and statistics, 40% of them said that they were religious conservatives. Now, that'd be higher than in Australia, but for America, that's kind of mainstream. What was interesting is that your level of religious or Christian involvement uh, decreased between the hard sciences and the social sciences. Okay, for scientists. What about, um, what about for philosophers? Well, this man was a, this silhouette, this man was a lecturer in philosophy at Christchurch College uh, from 1950 to 1954, won a whole lot of other degrees, Aberdeen University. This other man, Doctor of Philosophy at Notre Dame University for 30 odd years, and they are, well, Anthony Flew, unfortunately, uh, Professor Flew is dead now, but uh, Anthony Flew was the, wouldn't be unkind to say, the Richard Dawkins of the 20th century, and debated uh, for the cause of atheism, wrote a very influential paper, uh, uh, language and, and theology. And the other man, is an outspoken Christian. Alvin Plantinga, uh, 30 years there, and he's um, probably equally famous as a philosopher. More philosophy. Uh, these are the ones I like, this one I like. Uh, journalist, author, let's go to the humanities. Controversial journalist and author, writes for the following, or wrote for the following um, journals, newspapers, uh, had written around 30 books, born in 1949. This man, born two years later, also controversial author and journalist, writes for, in fact, they even overlap in the, in the paper they write for, the New Statesman. He's written around eight books. And they are, of course, born two years apart, Christopher Hitchens and Peter Hitchens, brothers. Now, unfortunately, uh, Christopher Hitchens died uh, in 2011. So what's, what's going on here? Why is it that two brothers can look at the same information and come to totally different conclusions? To say that they don't think would be, it's a little bit simplistic, isn't it? Let's have a look. We've been working our way through uh, Luke's Gospel. Uh, this is the third uh, in our series. And uh, about two, two weeks ago, we looked at one of the turning points in Luke where Jesus decides it's time for him to walk to Jerusalem. And he walks from Galilee. It's about 109 kilometres in a straight line down to Jerusalem. Uh, when we get to chapter 10, where we are, he's on the way somewhere. Uh, and what Jesus does is to give us an explanation for why it is that two brothers, two people, both learned can look at the same information and come to such distant results, uh, such different results. Do you notice in your outline, if you look, I've got the text of Luke chapter 10 printed out. Do you notice that verse 21 is strange? It says Jesus is full of joy. He, he rejoices. Uh, in the context, I haven't read the entire chapter. You might like to take it away and read it. But in the context, it's kind of this chaos going on. Many people um, rejecting him. It's, and yet, why is he joyful? What he's done in chapter 10, uh, huge population around Galilee. Josephus, the first century historian, tells us, and so Jesus has selected 72 people and sent them out with a message. A message about, well, let's have a look. In chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, Jesus says this to the 72. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Jesus is always on about the kingdom of God. It's a, it's a kind of a dynamic idea. It's the idea of knowing God through his King. Of finding forgiveness and purpose and being in a, a personal relationship with God uh, through his king. 
And at this time, as the, as the message goes out, there are some who accept, and yet, strangely, many who reject. Many who say, no, we don't want to know Jesus, stay away. And the question is, why? Is it that there's insufficient evidence? Well, I, I'd put it to you today, and I think, well, of course I'd say this, but I believe there's lots of evidence in favour of not just the existence of God, but the truth of Christianity. Scientific evidence points one way, there's history of the New Testament, all sorts of evidence. And Jesus, in Jesus' day, overwhelming evidence. Look at what he says. And yet, the overwhelming evidence has been rejected. He says in chapter 13, uh, sorry, verse 13 of chapter 10, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! They were two of the villages around Lake Galilee where Jesus did many of his miracles or literally mighty works. Woe to you, and the woe is a cry kind of like, oh no, looks what ha- look what's happening, this kind of this tragedy unfolding. He says, why woe? For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they were big, uh, big pagan cities down the road, in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. The sackcloth and ashes is kind of a, a metaphor for being truly sorry for what you've done. They would repent it long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it'll be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. So they saw all of these miracles, they saw all these mighty works, and yet they rejected the message. Said, no, we don't want to know. Why is that? Well, there's a number of factors involved. There's the messengers who bring a message in words. The message comes to people who then make a decision to say yes or no. But there's another factor involved. In fact, you could say that factor isn't a factor, but a, an actor. Do you like that? I, I bring that word pretty well. Actually, Russell's quite clever. The factor is actually an actor. And by that I mean personal. Yeah, uh, messengers, message, rece- uh, people who receive... The one I've left out is God. And in those verses that are highlighted in bold print, it's Jesus. He's, he's rejoicing. Why? Because, because God is in control. And you'll see at the bottom of the outline, I've got three points, three things that Jesus shows us about God. He is a God who hides things, a God who reveals things, and then what pleases God. So let's have a look what is it that Jesus says about, about God. At that time, in the middle of rejection and chaos and him walking, and at that time Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Notice how, you notice how Jesus refers to God? First of all, as Father, kind of intimate, personal term, and then as Lord of heaven and earth. So you've got kind of Father, the intimate, personal, and then Lord, the one who controls everything. Um, and what's he saying? That God hides things. That God is not passive. In this the idea of the kingdom of God and the message going out and people being invited to know him, find, God's not passive. God's active. He's saying God actually has hidden these things. And in the context of these things, it's 
It's the message of the kingdom, the offer of forgiveness. And who has he hidden it from? The wise and learned. Now, what does he mean? Does he mean, I worked at the Pizza Hut so I can get in, John Lennox can learn Russian from a book really quickly so he can't? No, obviously not. What does he mean? I think he means those who are wise and learned in their own eyes. Um, in the prophecy in the Old Testament, Isaiah, it's a big written prophecy about 7800 BC, kind of right in the middle of the Old Testament part of the Bible. Isaiah says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. It's a theme that runs through the Bible, that beware of thinking that you're too clever. In fact, any of the twos, T-double-O, can be a problem. Too clever, too educated, too sophisticated, too cynical, too streetwise, too proud. Uh... Have you ever wondered why saying God, God will sometimes will hide things from people? That's what Jesus is saying. Have you ever wondered why it is that two brothers can look at the same information and come to totally different exper experiences or results? Uh, one brother can look and say, wow, this is the, the meaning of life. I, I, I know God. I've I found forgiveness. And another brother, teddy bear eyes. I don't know how long you've, since you've looked into a teddy bear's eyes. Uh, they're, I mean, they're cute, but there's not a lot going on. What I mean is... <laughs> well, you can see, okay. <laughs> what I mean is, not that a person's stupid, but you look at a teddy bear and a teddy bear's just saying, I don't get it. And that you can have someone who's intelligent, clever, and they look at it and they just go, I don't get it. In fact, I could tell a story, I think it's okay. Love him dearly, he's a very intelligent man. Uh, he's not a Christian, I have been for many years, and I remember one conversation we had, we were fishing, sitting at either end of a, a tinny, a little aluminium boat, if you're not used to the word. And uh, we're sitting there fishing, and when you're fishing like that, there's no escape, is there? Okay. So... So I've said to, I've said to Mark, now, mate, um, I've been a Christian 20 years. He said, uh-huh. I said, um, and in those 20 years, I, I've never preached at you, have I? He said, no, you've been good. I said, well, <laughs> I've waited 20 years. How about a go? He said, yeah, okay, that sounds fair enough. Where you go. So I did, and I talked to him and talked to him, and, in fact, I talked myself out. And you know me, okay? So I talked myself out. God, Jesus, forgiveness, or got to the end, and he didn't interrupt me. He listened, apart from saying occasionally, I'm another prawn, please, okay? <laughs> and uh, I got to the end and said, well, mate, what do you, what do you think? And he said, uh, nothing. I said, nothing? It's like, it's God, Jesus, forgiveness, the promise of eternal life. It's, the, it's like, how can you say nothing? And he said, well... What do you think about motor racing? I said, oh, nothing. I'm not into it. So I guess that's me and God. Now, it just—it's like what? What's the? What's the difference? See so the second point: the God who reveals. If you want to get to know a person, you can kind of study them in a way. Like, yeah, okay, here's a. Here's a photograph of my friend Glenn. And you look at that, you can kind of study it, you can know certain things about Glenn, like 
he's a big bloke, he likes his food, uh, good smile, you could maybe guess his family's from South Africa. But if you wanted to get to know him, what's got to happen? He's got to talk to you. He's got to reveal things about himself. Like he's, he's a chef, he's a great cook, he's a mad keen Sydney Roosters fan, he's got a, a beautiful son uh, who's in year 12, there's all sorts of things, that, but he's got to speak to you. He's got to speak to you, he's got to reveal himself. And you see, that's what Jesus says about God, who is personal, in the very next verse, at verse 22. Jesus says, all things have been committed to me by my Father. So, remember, now here's where big big idea in the, in the Christian teaching God is Trinity Father, Son and Spirit and you see that here right? Um, all things have been committed to me by my Father no one knows who the Son is except the Father and no one knows who, knows who the Father is except the Son so that, that within God God the Father and God the Son have a, a special relationship that other people, there's a, there's a level of intimacy that other people don't have but who is it that can know the Father, God the Creator? He says, no one can know the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. <laughs> those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Do you see what, you see what Jesus said? Can you feel how outrageous that claim is? Not only is Jesus saying that He knows God in a special way, but He's saying you won't know God unless Jesus chooses to reveal God to you God chooses to reveal himself to certain people um, Anthony Flew the man earlier on uh, on the left hand side uh, who was an outspoken atheist for ooh, 50 years or so as an old man in 2008 he wrote a book or co-wrote a book called There Is a God it caused quite a bit of controversy in, in atheist circles stirred up a few people and he became what you might call a theist, that is, a believer in God. Let me read to you what he says about why he became a believer or came to believe there is a God. He said this, I now believe that the universe was brought into existence by an infinite intelligence. I believe that this universe's intricate laws manifest what scientists have called the mind of God. I believe that life and reproduction originate in a divine source. Why do I believe this, given that I expounded and defended atheism for more than half a century? The short answer is this. This is the world picture, as I see it, that has emerged from modern science. So Anthony Flew looked at the developments of modern science, particularly physics, in the last 30 or so years, the Big Bang Theory and all that, and decided that there must be a mind behind all of this. But for me, anyway, the sad thing is this. He didn't ever come to know God personally, at least from what I could tell in the book. Um, he, he didn't embrace Jesus as his Lord and Saviour. He, he knew there was a God from looking at creation but couldn't, didn't know God personally. And Jesus says God has to reveal himself to people. But did you notice in verse 21... Jesus says who God chooses to reveal himself to. At that time, see if you can pick out where it is. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. 
Yes, Father, for this is what you are pleased to do. What does he mean, reveal them to little children? Uh, I don't think he's talking about age. Okay. I don't think he's talking about gullibility. I don't think he's talking... He's certainly not talking about good behaviour. If you've ever had little children, you know that's not the case. <laughs> so what, do you know the story about um, Jesus and the little children? It's later on. It's in... Well, it's in Matthew. It's also in Luke's Gospel before Jesus gets to Jerusalem. So the story of Jesus and the little children. Here's the uh, poster that launched a thousand Sunday school rooms. This is kind of... Uh, hippie blow-wave Jesus, I think. Um, the little lambs and the... And anyway, you don't need a rant from me about this. Uh, whatever it looked like, I can guarantee it didn't look like that. What's Jesus actually saying? And as, as usual, what Jesus says has kind of a, a sharp edge on it to make us think. Here's the incident. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. Get those kids out of here. Jesus is busy. Hurry, like, you've got serious. Take those kids away. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Why? For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. What does he mean? Does he mean you can only come into the kingdom of God when you're a little child? No, no, no. Look what he says next. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And what is it about children? Yeah, they're trusting. They're dependent. They have that humility to acknowledge that they, they need help. And I think the question is saying this, will you trust God in how he's revealed himself? Will you be humble enough to put yourself under his words? Will you, be, will you ask God to show you to reveal himself? Incidentally, I think we've just got time. Uh, Jesus is talking about who, um, how you enter the kingdom of God, how you come to know God through his king, how you find forgiveness. But I think Jesus also wants this for those who've been followers of Jesus for a long time. And there's some verses here that I've finally understood after years of not getting it. Have a look at, at verse 17. And these are the 72 messengers who are sent out and there's a problem with how they're thinking of themselves. See verse 17. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. What's the problem? It's very easy to start thinking it's all about me. And thinking, hey, this is great. We've got this power that Jesus has given us and it's all about us and we can... And then Jesus says this verse that I've never understood. Verse 18. He replied... I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I don't know, why do you say that there? I was listening to uh, the American preacher Tim Keller, you say, on this, and it, it's as clear as day. He, he's absolutely right. Verse 18, we don't know much in the Bible about why it is that Satan was cast out of heaven. There's, there's hints of it. We, we just get kind of glimpses, enough to know he's there, he's real, stay away. But what we are told is this, he was cast out of heaven because pride okay because of pride rather than humility and and the 72 come back and they start oh it's all about me and pride and Jesus says beware of pride that's what he's saying and then verse 19 I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all power of the enemy nothing will harm you so yeah all these great things you can do but verse 20 however do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven 
Don't ever get past the idea of just being grateful and humble at the promise of forgiveness and eternal life. So one last thing to finish and then uh, I hope there'll be some uh, questions or comments. What is it that God truly wants? Uh, it's that, that we come to him as, as little children, if you like, not wise in our own eyes. Uh, a verse that my dear sweet old mum used to quote very often, uh, I remember, from the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, as God is, is talking about the creation and everything that he's made and actually what he wants from people, he says this, Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with favour, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. It's those who place themselves under God's word. And the ones who God reveals himself to are those who will humble themselves before him and ask. If the Son, who you seem to be speaking about Jesus, chooses to reveal God to some people and keep him hidden from others, then how can I be blamed for not believing in God? It's a very good question. Very good question. The Bible holds two themes side by side and never lets go of them. And that's this. That people are we are real people real moral agents, we are not robots, we make decisions and we're held accountable for them. So do you remember Jesus said um, Capernaum and Bethsaida and some were going to be held accountable because they'd seen all of those things that he did and still said no. So you'd be held accountable. At the same time the Bible says that God's in control and God chooses who he'll reveal himself to. It's like God taking the initiative, the overwhelming uh, flow of the Bible is that the idea of God choosing is not God being mean and hiding, but God taking initiative and opening people's eyes and grabbing people and forgiving them and bringing them to himself. But the Bible holds both of those together, human responsibility and God, the, the Bible's word for it would be God's sovereignty, God as king. Both true and the Bible never lets go of one or the other. If you, if you do let go of one or the other, the, the kind of things get get out of whack. People might want to ask more about that, but that's okay. Well, there was a question that came before that one, but it kind of it jumps off of that question too. In a way, is that it says, "I'm confused." You go between the Father and Jesus as if both are God. Which one is God? Okay. <laughs> Did you notice? Um, uh, let me let me go back. Uh, no, no. Okay. <laughs> At that time, Jesus, okay, who told about is God the Son, speaks to his Father, and yet is full of joy through the Holy Spirit. And so the Bible shows us God, one God, here, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, okay, and yet God in three persons. God somehow in relationship within himself God the Father, God the Son and God the Spirit and the early church well, it, it, it makes your brain hurt if you think about it too much um, uh, you can think about it, you should but it'll make your brain hurt and it took a long time to come up to be able to try and formulate how is it that the Spirit is called God uh, God the Son is called God God the Father is called God the, the, the word they came up for with it is trinity, the idea of tri is three and unity, 
and it's a way of trying to explain what the Bible shows us about God. If you really want to know, if God the Son steps into our world and becomes human, truly God and truly human, when Jesus prays, he is not talking to himself. Okay? The Spirit of God is God, most clearly, is God at work in our world. I can't explain it all, but I can see how it works in the way that the New Testament presents God. Okay. So you keep reading, you see. Um, yeah, there might be some more follow-up questions about that. Right? Yeah, no, I think the nail that's the whole doctrine of the Trinity in 45 seconds. No yeah, problem. Yeah. Yeah, yep. we'll, we'll <laughs> all right. Um, the, uh, here, just this this question. This, I think it's based off of your uh, the discussion you're having with your brother. Yep. Um, but how do you um, explain or talk to somebody about God without offending them by calling them either blind or foolish or anything like that? Uh, well, first of all, it should this this teaching. If you're a follower of Jesus, I know like some of us will be, some of us won't be. If you're a follower of Jesus, it really should keep you humble, because it's not that you're particularly good or particularly clever. It's just that God's had mercy on you. And even your humility to ask isn't particularly the good, the good work. It's just the empty cup that you're having to hold out that God's filled up. And so it should make us patient and respectful of people. Um, so, for example, in, um, when Peter writes to his first letter, 1 Peter 3.15, he says, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have, like when people ask, but do so with gentleness and respect. So it's the job of the follower of Jesus to present uh, the best way we can, evidence for why we believe, to try and live a consistent life, and then to know that finally, it's God who will open people's eyes. So, it, it should make us gentle, respectful, and patient. I always say, if you're a Christian, you can only fish with a light line. Right? So, what I mean is, you've got to be gentle in the way that you talk with people. That kind of thing. That's with my brother in the boat. You know, that's okay, there you go. Nice, nice segue. That's yeah. good. Now, any questions? Any questions from the audience? No. All right. Now, I've got a couple more questions, and we'll probably be, kind of finish up. Kind of jumping, dovetailing off of your last answer is, what is it really to be humble in the Lord's eyes? Humble, uh, humble is to realise it's not all about me. He's God, and I'm not, and. Uh, you know, so when you want the, the definition of humility, it seems to me here that God said, to be humble is to actually put yourself under God's words. To tremble these words, that's kind of picture language for to take God's words and God's promises seriously. Pride is the opposite to say, it's all about me, I'm at the centre, it, it's all about me. Humility is to say, well, no, actually, it's all about him. I, I think that's as clear a definition as I have. All right, um, last question, unless somebody else has something from the audience, um, just kind of going based on what you're talking, and also the title today, is that um, why then doesn't God reveal himself to everyone? This seems a bit unfair. Yeah. Uh, the Bible says there's enough information uh, for everyone to know that he's there. Anthony Flew or, or anyone. Uh Interesting too, the Bible says that God will judge us on the basis of how much information that we've had. Do you remember, uh, I think I can find this, remember with Capernaum and 
Uh, where are we? Um, yeah. Why is it that for Chorazin and Bethsaida, they'll be in more trouble than Tyre and Sidon come the judgment day? Answer, they had a whole lot more information and a whole lot more opportunity. Okay. Also, like I said, God will, God will judge people. People have real decisions to make and are genuinely responsible for those decisions. Overwhelmingly, God's action in the Bible, and the Bible calls it election, God choosing, is God taking the initiative to go out and grab people and to rescue them. Now, why does God choose to do that to some people rather than others? The Bible says that God is God and he'll do as he pleases. But the promise of the Bible again and again is, if you want God to reveal himself to you, if you want to know if this is true, if you will humble yourself and ask, God will show you himself. God will reveal himself. God will forgive you. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city, or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.